Welcome to Back to the Future, a limited podcast series where we speak to startups revving to go in a post-pandemic world. A warm welcome to Teddy Utomo, who is the president of Bukalapak. Bukalapak is an Indonesia-based e-commerce platform startup born in 2010, but since grown massively into one of the few unicorns in the region. It's received funding from the likes of Microsoft, GIC. Uh, it's estimated to be worth $3.5 billion US dollars. Now, moving on to Teddy. Uh, as a disclosure, Teddy is an old personal friend of mine. Uh, Ted has an illustrious career, rising through the ranks of equity research team at Credit Suisse Indonesia before moving on to the asset management world at Shorters. And then in 2018, he decided to pivot into the tech startup world, uh, joining Bukalapak first as the chief strategy officer, and then now he is now the president uh, starting from last year. Ted, thank you very much for joining us today. For the benefit of our listeners, perhaps you can tell us more about your motivation behind the career moves and how have the dots connected for you so far? I, I could have given you like a very proper answer of how I wanted to help the SME and, and the whole shebang of financial inclusion and what's not, but the reality is probably not as glamorous, right? Uh, it, it's simply as it turns out that uh, one of the shareholder of Bukalapa, it's uh, somebody who's very close to me. I've known this person for uh, at that time, 17 years. Now it's 20 years, right? And, and even his brother was my best friend and my best man in my wedding, right? So, so I guess when, when you get a phone call from, from somebody that you know at that level, uh, kind of you know, offer you, like, would that be something you're interested in? You know, I had to explore, uh, and and I went and I met this this guy that uh, his name is Willix. <laughs> he is currently our COO, um, and I worked out he's the he he knows my brother pretty well uh, from Melbourne U, um, and it just connected, right? So there's there was no you know the initial part was very personal, I guess that's how it comes down to. So it was a pretty straightforward decision. I see. That's interesting. The personal to business space and how the dots connected. Thanks for sharing that. Now, moving on to Bukalapak itself. Obviously, you guys have a tagline that I like quite a lot. Fair economy for all. And its founding DNA is based especially focused on, as you mentioned, SMEs. Uh, very name Bukalapak, for the benefit of listeners, again, means opening a store in reference to all the lapak, all the warung, small businesses that dot um, the small alleys and down to villages across Indonesia. Now, please tell us more about this focus area of the firm. Uh, what are the challenges? What are opportunities for business players, especially tech players, and they're hoping to grow in this space in Indonesia? Yeah, so, you know, I was an ex-analyst, right? So we kind of looked at this more on the top-down perspective, right? The first one is we realized that over 60% of Indonesian GDP came from the SME, right? And there are like over 60 million SME across Indonesia. It employs over 95% of the population. So it just tells you the total addressable market is massive. Now that's where we tap into, right? And 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 the initial, you know, the initial space, uh, the initial path when we move in there, it was actually because of a roadblocks. So it started off that we realized this whole Indonesia story about the demographic dividend, about the purchasing power, about the emergence of middle class, right? And we looked at it and we went, this is prime for e-commerce at a time we were still in e-commerce, right? But then we quickly realized that, hang on a minute, Indonesia is a country where six times of the population resides in outside tier one city compared to those reside in tier one city. Now, you know, very well how, how it works in outside tier one city of Indonesia, right? It's all about, you know, cash payment, uh, digital penetration is reasonably okay. I said, we turned out it was pretty good, right? But how can you address the issue of e-commerce 
when people are transacting with cash. That's when we kind of looked around and realized, wait, you kind of need to have an offline touch point because you needed to have the offline touch point to convert the cash into some sort of digital settlement, you see. And, and we knew very, very early on that, you know, if you looked at all the leading company in Indonesia, like Telkom, Indosemen, and all that, they are the leaders in their industry today because they were the first one to move outside tier one city. So we needed like a, a strategy to tap into the overall uh, nationwide demand and, and population. That's when we moved to tap into the warung at that time. Now we, are, we, are, we have opened up our definition of what we call Mitra or online to offline. Uh, we're now not just tapping into warung, we're tapping into all the mom and pop store. So, you know, individual clothing store, eateries, you name it, right? Um, practically all SME. Now, you know, the challenge is, is I guess you find out of it every day, right? Because uh, this is uh, something that I guess close to, I, at least in Indonesia, when we started, we never been done before. Uh, a lot of the challenge phase is, is multifold. So you have started from the point of a lot of the addressable market while they have smartphone, they have a very low capacity device. So you need to have your apps kind of crafted properly so that it doesn't have big megabytes, right? It has to have a user flow that's easily understood by a lot of the mass market. And then you went on about how at the end of the day, there's a lot of physical commerce and transaction happen here. So you need to solve a lot of this issue about logistics, about the warehousing and all the shebang. Um, so it's not just tech at the end. I think, you know, we looked at ourselves even today, we don't call ourselves as e-commerce. So we jokingly always call ourselves all commerce because we have online, we have offline, right? And the challenge are different, very, very different. And you need to marry this together very well. And I think that's the main biggest hurdle or challenges for any company that's doing online and offline and, and kind of link them together. Okay, maybe you can, um, for the, you know, to, to last trip, uh, to us again, all this online and offline, how, how do you manage the transition? I, I can imagine, you know, people going to the warung, the little mom and pop shop in a little village, mm -hmm. And they want to purchase something, right? There's maybe they've said it on their phone, but they have, they don't know how to pay for it. Are we talking about this guy going to the warung say, "I want to buy this. I'm going to give you this uh, X amount of rupiah," and then the, the the goods will be shipped there in a couple of days, couple of weeks. Is this how it works? Well, there was there was there was the original flow. Okay, uh, we still have that. So that was the the initial, uh, I guess, motivation, right, to get uh, financial inclusion in. So what we did at that time was connected uh, anyone who, let's say you go to your apps, you want to purchase uh, some uh, shoes, right? You, you've done your purchase on the apps and then you walked up to the mom and pop kiosk, you pay them with cash, you, you, you practically cite the reference number. The mom and pop kiosk will take your cash. They already have balance with us in our, our wallet. The, he, uh, the mom and pop kiosk owner would settle on behalf of your transactions. That was the very initial flow, right? So that was simply, mom and pop kiosk as a payment channel. Now, the whole thing has evolved massively from there, right? Because, because you know, then you moved in and realized, wait a minute, you know, there are other, other uh, uh, I guess, use cases. I guess the, the word in fact is use cases, but there are other things we can do with the mom and pop kiosk. We realized very quickly that the mom and pop kiosk, which typically uh, initially were the traditional convenience store, they would... Their daily life is actually reseller of mineral water, snacks, you know, shampoo, soap, and all that. But they kind of have to go through this whole process of the goods being kind of like went through the chain of distribution of six, seven layers. So the pricing is a little bit higher compared to 
if you get it straight from the first tier distributor. So because we have e-commerce, then we kind of become the first tier distributor and kind of provide that to them, right? And then it kind of evolve again where, hey, we can also don't have to do all this ourselves. We can partners with a lot of the smaller distributor generating the demand or the traffic from the mom and pop kiosk to this distributor, right? And we take a small margin out of it. And when this distributor are replenishing their product, they can actually use our contract, which is a better pricing. That way, you know, there's no unintended parties that got, I guess, disrupted, right? Because you kind of work with, with the distributor as well. And then we went on, hang on a minute, <laughs> we do have a marketplace, right? So we can move outside FMCG. So that kind of give, li uh, give life to a lot of our e-commerce today are what I call Mitra enabled. So they're almost like a, it's not almost, they are group buying structure practically. Mm -hmm. The mom and pop kiosk or, or the clothing store that we tap into start buying into clothing, start buying into you know, parts for bicycle and all that. And then they resell it or use it for their business or fresh food for the eatery, the, the warung makan. And then, you know, as we went on, it can develop further, especially this is during the COVID pandemic. We kind of thought, hey, how can we make this mom and pop store, how this SME generate more revenue? Because the whole idea for us is, you know, the whole business structure is the better they do, the better we do, because we make commission out of their transactions. So it's always about how can you improve their livelihood? How can you make them get more business? How can you make them sell more, right? So we start testing with virtual product. It started off with like, you can top up the phone credits. It worked because every time somebody walked up to the kiosk, now they just, you know, I want to top up my phone, uh, phone credits. I cite the number, right? And the mom and pop kiosk will top it on their behalf. They make commission, we make commission, everybody happy. And it went, well, let's try the whole lot. So we start throwing in bill payment, tax payment, remittance. You can send money now from, from the mom and pop kiosk to, to your mom in the village, right? Uh, games voucher, um, logistic agent, right? So we ended up, what we ended up doing in many cases would turn in like a traditional convenience store or a traditional uh, mom and pop store to be practically become more modern and more tech empowered compared to even modern store, right? Even, even some of them we call, you know, we, we nicknamed them super warung, right? Because you walked up to them, you can do email, practically financial service, you can do a, a tax payment, you can do, you know, all sort of stuff in there, right? That's how it kind of evolved over time. And, and, and then again, we didn't, we didn't have this roadmap very early on. It was something that as you go through, you're starting to find solution and additional benefit. And that, that because everybody wins. You know, the mom and pop store make more money. We make more money. And surprisingly enough, because of COVID, it kind of went, it kind of grew massively because honestly, I, I was a bit worried. Uh, if, you, if you spoke to me like early last year, I was a bit worried because mm -hmm. when COVID hit, you were like, oh gosh, you know, we have this offline store, right? But it turns out mentality of the people because of the pandemic rather than they travel like 20, 30 minutes to do their financial service, to do their, to purchase a virtual product and what's not, they want to stay around their house. And they, they quickly realized as we embedded more and more capability and this warung owner would start offering without us having to promote because they make money, right? You walked up, they say, hey, you want to send money, right? I don't need to spend any campaign, right? That guy become my influencer, become a brand ambassador, right? As a result, you know, the, the, the segment has grew like massively even throughout the pandemic. I see. That's fascinating uh, to, to hear about the evolution effectively of, of the Bukalapak's business model, uh, learning by doing essentially to overcome and then becoming part of the piece of the puzzle in terms of the distribution channel to work towards many, many parts of Indonesia. The pandemic part that you mentioned, I want to delve a bit deeper. Obviously, from the macro angle, as economists, as you know, I look at nothing but this GDP number. 
Islam. It's fascinating to see, you know, from your end, obviously, maybe the overall piece of the pie has shrunk, but at the same time, your piece of the pie has advanced because of the very hyper-localized uh, distribution channel that you have. Uh, moving on from, let's say, you know, we do have a post-pandemic world. Do you see that business model developing? So, you know, I, I think you get it right that, you know, the overall GDP would have been weaker, right? And, and we noticed that too in a lot of the AOV, the average order volume would be slightly smaller, especially on our first initial flow or our original flow of e-commerce marketplace that goes straight to end user, right? And I think the, the mom and pop kiosk did better because of two folds. One is because what, what we talked about, people want to stay in close proximity uh, of the residential area. Plus, we give them a lot more uh, features and use cases. And second, also, the weaker purchasing power, and you, you, you would know this, right? In Indonesia, there's this trend that if the purchasing power are weaker, people actually downsize the volume, right? So rather than buying a bottle of shampoo, they end up buying sachet, right? And what happened? It's simply rather than going to a supermarket, you ended up buying from the warung, right, from the kiosk. So that kind of helped a lot, I think, uh, in terms of the mom and pop store, uh, which, you know, yeah, sometimes it's a bit difficult for us to put together the macro number because I realized that a lot of the economists, a lot of the government official has been citing how SME has been pretty badly hit, but our number of growth was on multifold. So it may be something specific for us. Now, if you go to like, what happened in a post-pandemic? I mean, obviously nobody knows, right? I think I think 18 months ago, nobody would have thought that the world would almost go 80% working from home, for example, right? Uh, is this something sustainable? I don't know, right? But I think the, the fact that throughout this period, a lot of the user now realize that they can walk up to the mom and pop store that somebody, the owner or somebody they probably knows for the past 20 years because they're highly you know, embedded in the community that, you know, they know their father, they know the, the ch children go to the same school and all that, and start to realize, hang on, this guy can actually service a lot of stuff, right? From all my needs, from basic needs to, you know, top of earned credits, bill payment, you know, all this sort of thing. And I think that kind of naturally would continue, especially with a lot of this outside tier one city, particularly, and, and when it related to the mom and pop store, there is this personal relationship between the end user and the store owner, right? For all they know, they just tra transacting with the store owner, you know, call that warung mamat, right? <laughs> or kiosk bang mamat, for example, right? So it's not so much about the brand of Pukalapak, right? It's, it's about the personal relationship between me versus a guy that's been setting up that store, been sitting there for the past 15 years. You know, if he can help me doing all this, I'll give him some business because we are friends, right? I guess in a way, Bukalapak business is really about enabling all these very localized people who know their neighbors do more, right? Effectively, that, that's what yeah. it is. Yeah, so, so our vision, obviously, is to empower the SME, right? And the way we do it is, I guess, when it comes to a market, such a mass market, such an SME, right? You kind of need to know the very basic culture, the very basic, you know, nature of, of this segment. And, and we understood that because we're all Indonesian, right? So we know Indonesian likes to ngumpul-ngumpul, hang out, you know, things like that, right? And then typically the hangouts on those community stores and stuff like that, right? So I, I think the key for any companies addressing Indonesia and, and any, any other country, I guess, right? When you tap into such a mass market is understand what the idiosyncratic behavior, understand what becomes uniquely Indonesia, right? And use that to your strength. I guess the uniqueness of Indonesia is, is very, very real. I was just wondering in terms of geographical breakdown, obviously Indonesia is unique, but it's also 
a very big country, you know, from Sabang to Marauke, we have thousands and thousands of islands on, on high tide. I always joke that low tides, we find a few more thousand islands. But with, between islands, it, you guys have the tiles on the ground, right? Uh, I was just wondering, you know, between one island, say Sumatra to Sulawesi, how do you see the growth uh, prospects for Bukalapak? How has it been different? I think it's, you know, again, most of our operation would be focusing in Sumatra, Java although it's focused outside Kirwan City mostly, right? And that's because the population lives there, right? In Kalimantan, for example, uh, we do have sufficient density in, in East Kalimantan because it's a commodity producing area. Sulawesi, the Manado side, the Northern part uh, and, and the Southern part, the Makassar area, uh, we also have quite a, uh, a bit of uh, density. But our challenge also is not just looking at the economic demand. We also have to overlay that with the internet capability, right? <laughs> if, the, um, if the internet is slow, I mean, unfortunately I'm on tech business, <laughs> right? Um, if the internet is slow, it's tough, right? Okay. But, but I think one of the, and, and, and we appreciate this more in the past few years is that as you put it, Indonesia is very diverse, right? So having the right data analytics is crucial because you will end up demand from one regency so even the next regency will be very different in terms of their taste, in terms of the SKU, right? If you don't get it right, you'll probably end up you know, putting a lot of supply in, in one area and there's no demand for it, right? So, and we learned that you know, over time because you only, need, only time can help you through that because you need to have the sufficient data to track the demand, to track the, um, the different type of taste and all that, right? Well, it sounds like even within Indonesia, there's still a lot of untapped potential. Uh, hopefully, as tech infrastructure catches up, maybe eastern parts of Indonesia, uh, we might be able to see more development there that will help, say, Bukalapak business. But uh, zooming out a bit, see, from, from my perspective, I look at the region. Uh, now, I know Bukalapak is born and bred in Indonesia, has been riding consumer boom that's already big as it is, but looking beyond just our country, this expansion perhaps to other parts of ASEAN, something that is in the pipeline, how do you see uh, the model fitting or not fitting in some of these countries? I think today we're still very focused on Indonesia. Right, because it's a massive country. I mean, we're scratching the surface. When you're talking about mass market in Indonesia, talking about SME, I mean, we have 7 million SME connected to us. This is the mom and pop store, right? This is outside even the online marketplace, right? And in reality, there are like 64 million SME across Indonesia, right? So, so I think even in the next few years, we, we are not going to get that saturation point. We, we are not going to go out and say, we're going to have a regional ambition just for the sake of having a regional ambition. That, that's not us, right? Um, so for us is if we are to go into a regional space, it has to be something, you know, there's some value, there's some solution that we offer. Maybe in some area, some country that has a, a similar infrastructure of mom and pop kiosks in Indonesia, maybe we can help uh, whoever the player there to accelerate through the lesson because we noticed that a lot of this player has been following the same footpath that we have gone through. And unfortunately, it seems that they also copied our mistakes, right? <laughs> and we have done a lot of mistakes in the past, you know, honestly speaking, right? So maybe there are, there are value that we can provide them so that they can move up the, the learning curve faster. But we will not go out for, for regional ambition just for the sake of it. It has to be something concrete that we can solve and provide value for. If it's not the geographical diversification per se, what would you say the next big thing is for Bukalap? If you were to, you were the chief strategy officer. So what were you pitching as a chief strategy officer before? <laughs> and so let me put it in the simple numbers, right? Okay. As I put it before, there are 7 million connected to us today. There are 64 million SME. So that alone, 
means there's a massive, and 7 million is after four years, by the way. This is not a, a two sprint coded, roll it out kind of stuff, right? After four years, we got like about what, 11, 12% of the, of the total addressable market. Now, on top of that, what a lot of people didn't realize, because people looked at it from, oh, 64 million, you got 7 million, how much more to go? You know, you, then you grow by X percent, you got a 64 million. Well, that's true. But think of it this way. Every time we offer a new feature, that particular feature, even within our ecosystem, market share is zero, right? So, for example, February last year, we offer remittance, right? Uh, partnership with banks. Technically, our market share is zero. <laughs> then you grow that. And tomorrow, you come up with a new feature, like what we are, we're doing the online, uh, the, the logistic uh, agency, right? With the logistic agents. You go back to zero, right? On that particular product. You grow that again. So, every time you come up with a new features, a new business line, a new uh, use case, you started from zero. And that means that whole 7 million connected is your new addressable market. Plus that 7 million will continue to grow to eventually get closer to 64 million. See? So I don't think we're going to hit saturation point. Like I don't think even the next three years, five years, we'll get to the point that we said, oh, where are we going to grow now, right? I think the potential is massive. <laughs> now, I want to shift gears a bit, uh, Ted. Obviously, we've seen news um, that Bukalapak might well be going the SPAC route uh, in terms of potentially pursuing a listing in the US and also onshore in Jakarta. Could you share some color with us on that? Disclaimer, um, that article, not from us, right? <laughs> we, it's not something that we promoted, no. Uh, uh, we were as surprised when we saw the article. It includes number that I don't even know exists. But but I think the way we put it is, I guess it's easy, guess, to say SPAC because there's so many SPAC out there in Indonesia, right? So if any you talk to any tech company and even non-tech company, you say, you are talking to SPAC, 90% of the chance they would have been talking to SPAC, right? Because there's just so much SPAC out there that, that will talk to a lot of these emerging growth companies. For us, I think the focus remains the same, right? Our focus is, you know, we talked about how the vision on how to grow the business and all that, but managerial focus is actually to bring the company into profitable without sacrificing growth. Surely we will not grow like the crazy three, four, five X because you're not going to be able to do that while you're improving your financial profitability. So we, we, we still grow at a 50, 100%, which in normal standard of economy, it's still very high, right? But it's nowhere that two, three X that a lot of people talk about in, in a lot of the other space. But we aim to do that while bringing the company into profitable. And I think that will be the focus of the company first. Now, in terms of going public per se, you know, we realize that, you know, we are not going to, it's impossible to continue to be a private company forever. At some stage, you will have to become public. Of course, if we become profitable, I don't need to do as much fundraising. And therefore, that demand is a lot, the, the, the requirement become a bit more relaxed for me, right? But regardless of what it is, I think as a management, the prudent move that we have done is to ensure the company what we call IPO ready. And that's from the business side have the proper path to profitability that reasonable and tracking it, not just saying you have path to profitability and, and don't deliver, right? To make sure that your legal governance, audit, accounting, reporting, all that to comply with the best of the requirement in all the exchanges in the world, right? Because even if you don't get listed, you want to be at that stage. That is a good stage to be in because that's just the standard. You just have to meet that standard. We also heard news. I don't know how true again the news is. Potential merger of Gojek, also Tokopedia, um, via potentially also a spec. Couple of questions there. Uh, how would the merger of these two giant unicorns, fellow unicorns, basically change the landscape overall for Indonesia tech space? How would it impact your company? If that merge, that become the official Indonesia tech giant, 
right? So, so it's actually great because Indonesia then have this flagship company, right? But on the on the operational side, it doesn't probably affect us as much. But again, because for us, we are they, they are the cool guy, you know. They 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 they're the one with you know the K-pop and you know Tokopedia, for example, you know, and and Gojek is you, you can see they they're the cool people, right? We address very different market. We're the warung people, right? We are the, the mom and pop star, right? So our target segment is very, very different. You know, we, we are tapping into outside tier one city, and and you know, as right hailing will be more a lot more uh, hyper urban, as you know, right? So I I don't know if that's going to directly impact us as much. Surely it will have some effect because we also have some operation in tier one city, right? However, majority of our business is. Barung, non-tier one city, outside tier one, outside Jakarta, Surabaya, Bandung, Medan, Semarang kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. I think the overlap would remain relatively low. It's just a different piece of the pie, essentially. Correct. Yes. Moving on to the spec itself, obviously it's become a phenomenon much talked about. What do you think has become such a hot avenue for startups in the region to explore? Hot avenue? Maybe it's just because sheer volume, really. <laughs> and, uh, um, I think, you know, uh, again, a SPAC is a, is a, a pretty new uh, animal, I guess, uh, even for me, right? It's not something that I'm familiar with at least a few months ago, right? And then when you actually have a lot of people talk about it in media, you're bound to look into it, right? And when you look into it and then you realize that, you know, there are so many out there and there are so many that keen to talk to you and, and learn and explore, you will talk to them because the worst can happen is you learn something about SPAC, Right. And, and the fact that there's so many demands uh, to talk about it, not, not necessarily to execute transaction per se, right? I think it just becomes, it's almost, you can say liquidity begets liquidity, right? As people talk about it more, that becomes you know, more, more hyped and, and you know, your friends talk about it, your cousin talks about it, your employee talks about it, your competitor talks about it, right? Uh, and, and it becomes real because you know, you know that there are SPAC out there that talks to you. So you know that this is not just some media cooked up story because they are really there, right? And I think that whole combination kind of supercharged this whole, I guess, this whole theme about SPAC. I think that you mentioned liquidity because liquidity. We're, we're living in a very low, uh, low risk environment. Obviously, it's been going on for a little while. Some say that's been one of the major drivers for, for tech boom in, in general. Not just Indonesia, but overall. How, how do you see that being true? Are you going to be concerned if, say, one day low interest rate environment is no more, uh, things are becoming less commodity? I'm sure there's a fact from liquidity, but I think it's different for, I guess, company to company. You know, for, for us, we kind of run it with a perspective that liquidity will not stay forever. You see, so that's why we focus on bringing to the path of profitability because you can, you know you cannot running in, in growth mode forever, right? You need to bring it in profitable to to reduce a lot of your uh, fundraising needs and therefore you become less uh, uh, dependent upon the global liquidity. But on top of that, I think if you looked at our company, uh, you know, I, I don't know how it works with the others, but at least for us, right? What we have done has been in the past few years and even you know, longer than that, to make sure that we have as minimum as possible of cash burn, right? Uh, and I can vouch at the moment our monthly cash burn like single digit million, which is you know unheard of, right? And I think you know the amount that that I typically see uh, raise what people do in one race, one fundraising is something that took us like eleven years to raise, <laughs> right? Um, because or even more sometimes, right? Um, and and that becomes very interesting because the moment you you are not that required to raise significant amount of fundraising, it means that the smaller your raise, the smaller the liquidation, 
the, the dilution. The smaller the dilution, the smaller the need for you to hike up your valuation, right? Because if you need to raise a lot, you, you got diluted a lot. You need to kind of make sure your valuation is all the way up there. But if I'm only raising like a fraction of it every time, I don't need my valuation to be on, on any irrational kind of level, mm -hmm. right? And as a result, that kind of means that I'm less dependent on the influx or, or later um, uh, tantrum when that happens of the global liquidity, right? Um, that's how we kind of face it. You know, that's how we kind of do it. So make sure your company soon will go into a profitable level so you don't burn. But on top of that, make sure if you are going to raise, make sure it's a level that manageable by the, whatever liquidity in the world has. And by doing so, it also means you don't need to have crazy valuation. The, the more rational evaluation, the less you're exposed to liquidity flow. Well, I have just one question. Pardon me for turning the focus on you. Now, I mean, having seen the so-called traditional finance, you know, uh, world of investment banks, equity research on one hand, and now actively, very actively involved in the tech startup digital economy space. If a 20-year-old, uh, fresh college graduate would come to you, hey, but Teddy, can you advise me on which path to choose? What would you tell him or her? Hmm. I think... Let me put it this way. Uh, tech industry is tough, right? It's very intense. It's very demanding. But every company are different. And even within a company, you'll have a different mentor. What you want is when you join a, you know, this kind of battle, right? You want to be ready mentally, physically, intelligently, right? Um, for me, I can't help feeling that if I had not gone through the on-the-job training in the past, in a lot of the, the more traditional kind of industry, which it's, it's very intense, as we all know, right? I mean, you know, our, our time in, in, in financial service and all that, they're very intense, but it shaped you very well. Mentally, the way you think make you more mature, right? Um, and I think that becomes a very powerful attributes, very powerful offerings to the tech industry. So I would probably suggest make sure you are a lot more mature and crafted personality-wise at least. Uh, before you jump into this battle zone. It is a battle zone. Be battle ready and um, get training elsewhere effectively is, is a key message. If possible, okay. yes. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all that, Teddy. Uh, thank you for your time. And that was Teddy Utomo of Bukalapak. We just heard his professional journey from being a sales side analyst to now heading one of the largest unicorn e-commerce providers in Indonesia. Personally, I found his takes on the mushrooming of specs as a fundraising vehicle for startups and its insights in the often neglected middle to lower segments of the consumer market in Indonesia fascinating. This now brings us to the end of the sixth episode of Back to the Future podcast, where we'll be interviewing founders of innovative businesses across the region. Please join us next week to hear from Siva Ramanathan of Kesher. It's a payments processing company which started its growth by riding on the coattails of China's outbound tourism into ASEAN and the rest of the world. This has been a podcast from OCBC Bank. Follow us on Spotify for more episodes like the one you've just heard. Music